You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Every summer between uh, the ages of 8 and 18, um, my mom and dad are split, so uh, I had kind of joint custody. I would go over to visit my dad in Hong Kong. Um, in June and July, and uh, man, if you guys think it's hot in the south, you just got to go over to the HK. It is just swampy, 110 degrees hot over there with some typhoons that'll slam your door shut and make you think it's, it's haunted. And um, um, I knew viscerally when I was eight, like even at a young age, coming off the plane uh, into Hong Kong, that I was encroaching on a different world, like a different country, but like a different world. It was so hot and humid, you could feel it getting off the plane that there weren't carpets in the in the in the airports, you know, those little details, like it was just like these like rubber mats, basically, because the carpets would just get too, too stinky and rugged or whatever. And um, at the time, uh, we were on the cusp of 1997, which is a switching over of, uh, from the uh, British government. And so, um, you know, the kind of things that you see in a, a Hong Kong airport versus like the O'Hare airport in Chicago is different. They've got like AK-47s, like militia, you know. Uh, as an eight-year-old kid, I'm watching Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, which I probably shouldn't have watched anyways. But I'm like, man, this is like something out of, out of, out of a different world. And you, and you hit the streets and you come out and it's a different world. It's just a different set of rules and expectations. Uncle Duck's there. He drives a taxi. They're red over there and they don't follow any of the rules. Any of, there's no laws. Everything is just craziness. It's all suggestion. And there's four cars that are parked up against the street. And Uncle Duck has like, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night and has taken his car to pick you up. And he's like, cussing out some other bus driver who's like ready to take his spot and he's demanding that this is his spot and he's like whisking me off like I'm getting kidnapped or something with my dad to get into this little uh, car to go uh, eat at 11 o'clock at night because you don't go to sleep at 11 o'clock at night in Hong Kong. If you ever go there, you just eat, you eat and then you eat and then you eat. (laughs) And so um, I I would show up there and uh, it would be Uncle Duck, you know, Aunt Amy, like a smattering of the family, like not really the whole entire family, just the most random set of in-laws and cousins and like you know, that uncle's over in Peru, and this one's over here in Japan, and not everybody can make it. And, uh, and, but yeah, this is, my, uh, this is my celebration dinner. This is the welcoming home dinner for little Oliver, you know, that comes along, you know, at eight years old. And, uh, and uh, the entire dinner, I don't speak but 30% Chinese, it's all Chinese. Like, it's just people talking so loud. Like, you have never heard a person talk inappropriate loud until you get to a dinner at 10 o'clock that's supposed to be for you. This is your dinner, Oliver. It's like, but nobody's talking to me. And I'm just sitting here and people are eating, you know, like out of these bowls and like spitting out chicken bones, like the women and the men included. And they're like hawking up these crazy looks. It's just this very, very, you know, abrasive uh, exposure, I guess, to, to this, this other kind of a culture, this other kind of a world. And so I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful for that because uh, at a young age from eight to 18 every summer, you know, I, I was being uh, tutored really uh, in the color of culture, the, the, the coloring of uh, everything that we see and everything that we do and all the ways that we interpret it, by the time they get to our eyes, to our heads, and then to our hearts, and then to our actions, by the time that we see things, they've already been interpreted through the lens of the color of culture. Everything that we, that we see, uh, that, we, that we would take for granted or we take as obvious, uh, when you go to travel to other countries, you realize that the things that we take for granted, the things that we think are obvious, are actually just optional. They're just things that we choose. So like when we see, you know, little kids like mouthing off the teachers and mouthing off the parents and, you know, not trusting or respecting authority, when you go to another country, you realize that's a choice. 
That's a decision. Like, you don't have to do things that way. We choose to do things that way because it's not, it's not you know, obvious. It's optional. Um, when you go over to another country, like, for example, uh, for China, um, and you see uh, uh, the way that they handle safety. There's, like, little kids that, like, the mom will just give them the little, like, 20 yen or whatever, and they'll walk 10 steps down, you know, the huge urban, dangerous cityscape, right? And they're eight years old, and they walk all the way across the street with five lanes of people that don't follow directions, and they go all the way across, and they go get the groceries at eight years old. Like, for us, that makes no sense to us, right? Because we have chosen safety in a certain way and defined it in a certain way, and it, it's, it's, not, it's not optional to us. We just take it for granted. Uh, and so when we go across cultures, we realize that the clash of culture, you know, that, that the problems that we see uh, really not only between nations, but also between neighbors as well, is oftentimes not just, um, not just foregone conclusions, that they are decisions. Um, I remember uh, one time when, uh, when um, my, uh, my friend Matt went to go to this uh, Navy museum with my dad, and my uh, friend Matt just kept calling my dad KC, like his first name. Have you ever seen this before uh, with a more authoritarian culture? Just like a little kid calling uh, my dad by his first name, he was just, you could see this temple just pounding like this. <laughs> Uncle KC. He's like, uncle, I don't have any uncles. I don't KC, what are you talking about? You know, the clash of culture really tells us that oftentimes it's not uh, just enough to treat others as we would like to be treated, but also across cultures, we need to treat people as they would like to be treated. Uh, and we find out even across the aisle in our cubicles, in our schools, and in our marriages, oftentimes this is true, um, that uh, the, the conflicts that we run into are not oftentimes uh, because of... Um, because of offense or because of someone being, um, being offensive, but rather just because of differing culture clashes um, that we encounter uh, between one another. And so in Romans chapter 14, uh, just to catch you guys up, we're very much into the practical section of, of Romans, to the back end after the therefore portion. And so Paul has this premise about the gospel that the gospel does People that have... <laughs> have gone from, from less moral to more moral or, or, or um, less organized to more organized, that in fact, Paul, the way that he reckons the gospel in the life of a believer is that they go from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. And on the other side of the cross, what he's been going through in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is a redefinition of every level of uh, relationship, the way that we relate to one another. And so, as we talked about in Romans 13, in the way that he thinks about government. The reason why we follow laws is not because we're conservative or because we think that um, America is the best thing that touches the earth or because we're afraid of authority, but because we believe that every stranger is a neighbor and that the laws have come to us to help us organize the way that we would engage our neighbor because there's no strangers, there's only neighbors, and the greatest law of the royal command is to love your neighbor, and so the reason why we follow laws is because of neighbors. Similarly, inside the church, he shifts and he begins to talk about the culture within the church, and he's saying that every, every person, although they have maybe different backgrounds, different socioeconomic classes, they're different colors, there's different skin tones, that there's no foreigners, there's only family and culture in, in, in the church. And so, so he's redefining the way that we relate to everyone with a new set of, of culture. And he's doing all this in a very unsettling, right, in a very tumultuous place, uh, which is, as we've been reading about the entire time, within the setting of 150 people, but, but nonetheless powerful and profound in the, in the beginning fomenting of the gospel, and it's moving to Jerusalem and, and the ends of the earth, um, a very unsettling cultural climate, right, of Jews and Gentiles, in which uh, the structure of the church within the Jewish family used to be built 
on uh, these, these structures like bloodline, like, like, like law, like family tree, like heritage, uh, no longer are defining the DNA of the church anymore. It's only the Spirit of God. Then, in fact, that Paul actually believes that this little 12-person originally movement can make its way throughout the corners of the earth, um, not through bloodlines and law and heritage, but only by the Spirit of God. And so, therefore, as you could imagine, uh, the clashes that are going to happen inside of this community are imminent. That without the law of Moses and only the Spirit of God, these things like circumcision and Sabbath and rule-keeping that used to be essential to the core DNA uh, of the family of God have now become optional. And these Jews and Gentiles, the words that Paul is going to use in defining their relationships, have moved to judgment and contempt. Judgment meaning the fear and the danger of what will life look like without these external regulations are going to lead to a danger. Uh, These Jews will judge the Gentiles by saying, how dare you? How dare you come into this place and make a mockery of all these uh, really important spiritual heritage things that we have that create the structure of our community. And, and similarly, the Gentiles, in their moving into freedom and expanding the gospel into new territories and new colors of culture, are going to say, we don't need you anymore. We're going to have a contempt. And so here's what Paul does, moving into Romans uh, chapter 14, is that despite and against the expectations of giving new rules to this Christian community, he simply calls them to faith. Inside of this, this, this space that needs structure, that needs do's and don'ts, that needs rights and wrongs, that needs clear lines of order to create culture and homogeny over these newfound uh, spirit-filled Christians, you can feel the room wanting rules and he calls them to faith instead. And so this is basically what he says. He says, remember now, the gospel is not a set of principles. It is a power shift. It is a movement from coming under the power of sin to moving into the power of the spirit. And so therefore, if Paul were to write down, this is how we open the series in the first place, three words on the back of a napkin explain the gospel to your neighbor, he wouldn't write, even Jesus saves. Or he wouldn't write, um, do you know, you know where you're going to go when you die? He would write these three words, Jesus is Lord. He would write, Jesus is Lord, because the gospel is not a principle, it's a power. And it reorients the way that we relate to God, neighbor, self, and government, Right? And so therefore, if Jesus is Lord, he's not just in charge, but he's involved, and he's the one that's walking out the salvation, the the sanctification, and the unification of the church, then if Jesus is Lord, then I'm just a servant. I'm just a brother. I'm just a sister. And so what he does is he opens up this category for, yes, there is possibility for conflict between brothers and sisters that just says, look, um, I might be right and you might be wrong, but also there's this whole other category of we just might be different. And that's okay. And the way that we orchestrate walking through those gray areas is not to define new categories of rules, but to walk in faith, because we might be different. The other thing that he says is that when there's tension between cultures that are within churches, not on the majors, not on the gospel, not on the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, but the minor things of culture in everyday life, which pass away in the the end, um, we also might be weaker and stronger, that the person that's next to you Uh, might be wrong, but they also might be different, and they also just might be not as far along in their walk as you are. And so your role, right, as you guys ever have kids, you know, the thing about kids is when they get in fights, nobody wants to be a kid, everybody wants to be a parent, right? And so what he's saying, when you come into this place, the Spirit has made you new. He has taught you and made you righteous from the inside out, but your righteousness doesn't, um, doesn't overstep your role in the family of Christ. And so you're not a parent, you're a child. You're a sibling, and so your, your role is not to win arguments, but to walk alongside with disciples. Okay, and so this is the, this is the, the zinger, right, that he gives all of us, uh, really, is, is, is that 
if you study cultures and if you study even churches, right? Cultures are built on really three things. People, uh, systems, and um, they're built on uh, and rules, right? It's, it's built on the people that we like and we don't like, the rules that tell us what's right and wrong, and, and the overall values that preside over the thing. But this is what Romans 14, verses 16 and 17 says to them and to us. He says, don't let eating destroy anyone uh, for whom Christ died, for the kingdom of God is what? It's not a matter of eating and drinking. Like, there's a point when we're not going to talk about Hillsong music anymore. There's a point when, like, your culture in, you know, whether or not you are more of a right brain person or a left brain person, that's not going to be the presiding ways that we create community anymore. At the end of time, when all this stuff is stripped away, these are shadows, these are, these are architectures that point to a greater source. The thing that we are trying to grasp at as we gather in the name of Jesus are these things greater than food and drinking and culture and language and rules, right? Is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And here's the danger then, is that if we conflate, this is what he's going to make the argument, if we conflate Christ with our culture, we can cause our brothers to stumble and we can cause our neighbors to reject Christ. If we have no categories for the difference between my culture and Christ, then conflict is inevitable, clash is inevitable, and I actually might cause my brother to stumble over Christ when they're just stumbling over my culture. So just when you think that maybe this is just a Jew and Gentile thing and this is a long time ago and it's not relevant to us, right? Yes to black and white things, honesty, sexual integrity, drunkenness, forgiveness. These are black and white things in the Bible. These things are not going away. These are not gray areas. Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. These are major things that are, that are great to have disagreements on. These are things that we should stand and divide on, okay? But there's a lot of things that we should just be discussing, okay? And let me just read these off. I'm going to read them off, and you're going to chuckle at some of these, but then it's going to hit your thing, and it's going to zing you, all right? So this is the gray issues, all right? Culture in Christ. Where the Bible is not clear that you're going to search, right, for a verse and a passage on to actually say this is black and white in the gospel, you're, going to, you're not going to find it in the Bible, okay? Positions on dating, Courting, affection before marriage, betting on a game, playing the lottery, gambling, playing cards, yoga, meditation, smoking a pipe, aliens, smartphones for kids, Snapchat, Halloween, pyramid schemes, modesty, wearing shoes, wearing hats in church, tattoos, sarcasm, cussing, speaking in tongues, predestination, Jesus' return, age of the earth, six days or more, Calvinism, or the fine points of it, church and state, corporate worship, Catholicism, Rob Bell, Netflix, Hulu, having nice things or not having nice things, dancing, nudity and art, Friday or Saturday church, Democratic, Republican, Libertarian, Green Party, parenting, parental spanking, mental health and medication, diets, homeschool, public school, Christian school, Harry Potter, death penalty, immigration, cremation, hunting, tithing, membership, debt, birth control. Did I miss anybody? Right? Within the context of when people get together, there is the category of Christ, and then there's the category of culture. Culture is not bad. When we get into heaven, I'm still going to be Asian, okay? If you're an African-American, you're still going to be African-American. If you're white, you're white. Like, like, culture is a beautiful thing, but there's a difference between culture and Christ. And one of them serves the other. And if I, if my culture were to get in the way of you and Christ, then I need to say no to my culture in order to elevate Christ. Because if I can't tell the difference between culture and Christ, then I risk the, 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 the very real possibility that I can cause my brother to stumble and my neighbor to reject Christ when actually they're just rejecting my culture and stumbling over my culture. 
And so let's, let's look into this passage. So um, it's a longer one, but it's a simple point. So we're going to make our way all the way through the beginning of 15. But it says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. He says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand and they fall. And they will stand, for the Lord's able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred uh, than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord, and whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and um, ourselves, excuse me, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord, and gives thanks to God, for none of us lives for ourselves, and none of us dies for ourselves. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living." You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, as it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So the translation is that it's not only important in the gospel to understand a clear picture of righteousness, but it's also important to understand a clear picture of our role and becoming the righteousness of Christ within inside of the church. And so if you notice, there's three words that are ascribed to God as the master. And that is for each and every believer in this room, that God is the master, which means he's the, he's the one that can cause a person to stand. At the end of the day, there is nothing you and I could do, say, preach, give, or take that can cause a person to stand in Christ. That's not our role. That's not our responsibility. That's not our ability We recognize that as a God-given miracle. If someone is standing today in Christ and they continue to stand tomorrow, it's not because of anything that I do or say or give or take away. Now, I can cause them to stumble. And that should bring me a sense of sober, like, trepidation. That I do not want my brother to stumble based on my cultural bias. But at the end of the day, I am not the disciple maker. I am not the gardener. I'm not the one that can make somebody grow. And so therefore, my opinions should be all warranted and and relegated around that relational dynamic. I am a brother and sister. I'm not the master. I'm the servant. Two is I don't judge. I don't know what's in somebody's heart. I don't know what's in somebody's mind. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. And ultimately speaking, I'm not going to be judged for what they do in their marriage or in their parenting. So when I come over and give them advice that might lead them towards something that God's not saying, I need to watch with caution of that. Because I'm not the master. And lastly, it says that uh, all of us will give an account. All of us will ultimately answer to the Lord on that day. And so, similarly, in the last explanation is I'm not going to answer for my neighbor's um, money situation. I'm not going to answer for my neighbor's parenting situation. They have to answer to God. So, um, college in a 40,000-person school at IU, at Campus Crusade for Christ, interdenominational thing, you'll learn a lot. You'll get knocked on your butt a lot. It'll be great. And so uh, I, I met a guy uh, in my second year, and he was an RA, and it was like one of these guys that just got baptized in lemon juice. He was so serious. I mean, he would just lead, read Levin, Re, Leonard Ravenhill. Do you know who this is? He would just read these old Second Great Awakening preachers, Jonathan Edwards, and just get fired up about the brimstone 
of hell and salvation. He was an intense Bible study leader. I'll tell you what. And I mean, it would just, it just personally rubbed me the wrong way. Now, some of you guys might love this. You know, this is just showing my cards or your cards or whatever. And so I would just be like, man, like, I can't wait till he really gets the goodness of God. Like, I just cannot wait till he learns about the goodness of God the way that I know the goodness of God, right? I mean, this is like, I'm not saying this was what I'm thinking, right? And um, I got to know this individual, this this young man who's gone on, who's still following the Lord and and has a great family and and leads in church and all these sorts of things. And I come to find out that uh, this young man, uh, before he was an RA, grew up in an alcoholic background. His parents were alcoholics. And uh, although he had made his way in college and had gotten scholarships and gotten to college, he did not come from the same background as me. And for me, in all of the fluidity and the relational dynamic that I had come to grow in love in the kingdom of God, all of that grayness just meant unsafety for him. That for him, where I needed fluidity and spontaneity, he needed that structure because he came from chaos. So my fluidity was his chaos, right? And so he's coming in from a different background than me, and my heart and my mind and probably sometimes my actions are at jeopardy of causing this man to stumble into what God has grown to, to cause him to stand on. I met another guy coming to the South. I'm from the North. I don't get it. You know, I'm just learning my way. And uh, there are people in the South who um, have grown up in very legalistic backgrounds and unfortunately cannot make the distinction uh, between the rigid, legalistic, um, brow-beating, Bible-thumping kind of background that they're coming from and God himself. And it used to bug me because this individual I met him at Starbucks used to drink a beer a night. This is a Christian, right? Drink a beer a night almost to prove to himself, right, that Christ was not religious. To make his conscience feel good, I guess, about, about his journey. That was part of his process, right? And I'm sitting there judging him the same way as I did the RA. And what am I saying is that on both ends, the church of God is not a factory, it's a family. And that the process is not an assembly line where everybody goes to first grade and then the second grade and the third grade and the fourth grade, that all of us are in a family and there's no two believers in this room that are alike. And so therefore the, t- the template, the curriculum is always different and it causes us to have to get out of this win-lose the argument mode and into the walking mode, to walk alongside brothers and sisters. And so, um, man, I have not done good clock management today, so I'm going to see what I do after this passage. Might have to do a part two on this one. Um, but um, it reminds me of my son, uh, Alec, who's 11, and he's got a little brother who's uh, five uh, named Ollie. Have you ever been 11 with a five-year-old who wants your toys Woo! and doesn't know how to manage your toys and you have $80 Legos or whatever it is? Um, there are things that uh, an 11-year-old kid can get his hands on and build uh, in months and months and months that a five-year-old can come along and tear apart in minutes. Have you seen it, right? Permanently tear apart. I mean, just pictures and paintings that are just, del- I mean, hearts and passion and not just, you know, doing schoolwork, but things that my heart and my, my livelihood have been put on this piece of paper and a kid will take a Sharpie and just scratch it all out, right? And so what I'm saying is that, and I think what this passage is getting at, is as we, as we make our way into God's church, first and foremost, we are not the masters, we're the servants. And two, this is God's workplace where there's works in progress. We are all smiling and we all have our khakis and we're all have the same iPhone, Right? But some of us are barely here. Barely here. And when we do so much to go outside of, the, of this building and go and minister to people to go from, let's say, negative 10 to go to negative 9 towards Christ. And we pray that hopefully negative 9 turns to negative 8, negative 5, and negative 4. But all of a sudden, when we think 
that somebody comes through the doors of this church that all of a sudden they're on plus 10. They're not. There's people here that are barely here. And, and, and this is God's workplace. And so what it's saying is like, you know that like what, what can take God years in a ministry can, can be torn down and destroyed in a minute. You know that, right? You know that you could build a marriage over years or sobriety over years and it could just take a minute. I know. I know there's things that I've said in sermons before that have unfortunately put my culture ahead of Christ and has caused people to stumble and maybe even walk out of the doors, at least of this church. I don't know where they go, but it could take minutes. And this is what I think it's saying is there's this, this place of this is God's workplace. And as we come in, we are not the masters, we're the servants and recognize that we cannot cause somebody to stand, but we can cause them to stumble. And we do not want to make that mistake of putting culture in front of Christ. All right, uh, I'm going to read this last, last passage, and, and, um, and that will probably be it for this morning. Make sure you guys have some lunch. But uh, verse 13, <laughs> sorry. Therefore, uh, let us stop passing judgment, this is what Paul says, on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. He says, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is. If a brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone else for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let them or let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in that way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Let's not win arguments. Let's walk beside each other. Do not destroy the work God has done for the sake of food or your comfort or your cultural background or whatever. But understand this is God's church and therefore his workplace where he has got a process going on for your brothers and sisters beside you. He says, look, all food is clean. It's not a matter of what's right and wrong. Right? All food is clean, but... It is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes anyone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, in a very polite way, keep it to yourself. No. Um, <laughs> keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubt is condemned if they eat. Because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Okay, so I'm going to show you this one chart, and then I'm going to wrap it up. So... Basically, Paul has given not just two categories, he's actually given four categories. And what he said is that in this church, Jew, being actually the top row, is actually the weaker of the two. Did you notice that? Usually you think weak means somebody that's not following the commands, somebody that's less disciplined in their following of Jesus. These are Pharisee, ex-Pharisees, these are ex-Jewish people, right? And he's calling them weak. Why? Because they are not able to disassociate their culture from Christ. Like, that hymn is Christ to them. It's not a great place to be, but it, it is what it is. Like, that worship song, that, that way that we do four anthematic songs in the beginning and none at the end. You know, the way that we do prayer lines or the way that we, you know, handle minor biblical issues like secondary matters. It's not that helps Christ. That is Christ. And so the weak mind is not separating from that, Okay. And the strong mind then, more likely to be the Gentiles, or Paul puts himself in this category, understands that nothing's unclean, that everything is just a shadow and it's all pointing to Jesus, right? Now, but here's the, here's the, here's the kicker. This is what's important. If you notice, Paul's call to action is not for the top row to go down to the bottom row 
It's not for the weak to come strong, but for the weak to become mature and for the strong to come mature. You see that? The goal is not that you silly, rigid, legalistic person you need to get on my boat. Everybody needs to be like me. The goal is that all of us become like Christ. And that is, I understand. Look at what he's saying. He's saying, if there is a person that needs the King James, don't mess with them. Let them walk. God will turn them over. Like, God, I mean, if that, maybe, that's, maybe that's for you to learn from them. He's saying that's not an illegitimate category. Let them stay there. Okay? So maturity is not you become like me to get to Christ. Maturity is we become like Christ to get to each other. So the goal is maturity, right? So if you're a counselor, like I think Emily is here, right? So Emily back there, right? This is what this looks like to me, Emily, as a, and the counselors in the room. This is boundaries, right? This is basically, you know, marriage counseling 101 is you follow Jesus and I follow Jesus and we find unity in our following of Jesus, not copying each other. So here's what's really fun about this. So this is like really a passage about caution, but I also think it's a, it's a passion about celebration because if you really think about this in its furthest extent, what it's saying is that mature Christianity doesn't turn the church gray, it turns the church colorful. It allows me to follow Jesus in a certain way that is important, distinct, and legitimate in a way that's different from you following Jesus, and you don't have to be like me to get to Jesus, and I don't have to be like you to get to Jesus, is that we're going to get to Jesus and find each other. And the church is a colorful place in that way, Right? And so the, the truth is, is that that RA and even like that whole stream of strong doctrine, right? Like tight, systematic theology. I get to say in my freedom in Christ, others may, but I may not. And I get to draft off of, right? And, and use when I prepare for, let's say for sermons or something like that, the work and the passion and the firsthand calling of somebody's gift set and shape Without having to be them, I can still be blessed by them because I don't have to compare myself to them. And I don't have to see them as a threat because I understand that in a house full of family that no two brothers and sisters are the same. And so I'm here to follow my faith, not his faith. I'm here to follow Christ the way that he has called me, not on the major things, but on the gray things, on the gray things, right? For those in the room, right, another thing is is, is the spirit and and truth side of things, right? Like there are people, and this is the reality, and I think we need to understand this, like, they are never going to want to lift their hands in worship on a Sunday morning. That doesn't mean they're immature. It just means that they're wired different than you. So they're going to follow Christ their way, and I'm going to follow Christ my way, and we're not in competition because we're brothers. And we're not here to win, right? We're here to walk alongside each other. And then, therefore, as we spend time together, not that we elevate Christ amongst our culture, but we make the church colorful. We make the church a diverse place that can reach people. You can reach people I can't reach. And you trying to be like me inhibits you from reaching the people you're supposed to reach. And so if we were to color the church as, as opposed to copy it, and I'll just, this is, I guess, where I'll have to land today. If we were to color the church instead of copy it, we would see God as our judge. I was at a, 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 a breakfast the other day with a brother, and he said, you know what, man? I went to that Doctor Strange movie. It wasn't for me. He's not saying, like, look, don't go see Dr. Strange. It's, you know, satanic or it had dark themes in it or whatever. He's not saying that. He's just saying, I know that that thing was not for me. And so what this passage is saying is, like, don't look for the approval of the elders or the deacons or the, or the preacher. You're going to be judged by God. And if it's not right for you, then don't do it. You're responsible. This is what boundaries, I guess, would look like in a secular sense. But in a Christian sense, this is what boundaries looks like. 
is I'm following according to my faith, and you're following according to your faith, and that, therefore we're responsible according to our faith, not our brother's faith. If there's, if there's something that makes you stand, you know, like, like we want to have these good, predictable patterns of word and bread and prayer. Like I do believe that, that is a major issue, that Christians are called to word and bread and prayer at the table, but you might read the word differently than me. And don't allow me or anybody else's um, pattern, ethos, and the way that you read the word and the way that you digest the word and the way that you um, hold the word and meditate on it. Imitate, but then innovate because ultimately you're called according to your own faith. You will be held accountable for the hours that you have. And just because 99% of the people in this church are not missionaries doesn't mean that you're not called to be a missionary. And if, if, if our faith is only mat- mattered comparatively and, and laterally uh, to the person beside us, we might miss our opportunity to give what we're accountable for. And so that's like apparently all the time that we have for today, and I'll have to just rearrange the message for, for next week. Uh, but I'll leave you with this, uh, this last intentional question as the, as the band comes forward. Um, but just this question, as we rub against uh, maybe culture clashes, have you had culture classes in, in, in church? Are there people that you wouldn't come to the table with? Are there people that annoy the snot out of you and you just don't get it? Right? We all have a couple of these. What does it look like to come to the table with them as brothers and not masters? What does it look like to come to the table with them and understand that um, Christian love does not always mean Christian-like? And part of the process of growing strong to be a strong church is not to become gray, to become colorful. A strong church learns how to do more than tolerate. It celebrates diversity and recognizes that the way that you follow is not the way that I follow, and you and me being here together is not an incident or accident. That we are here together specifically to grow strong, that we might be able to differentiate culture, which is beautiful, but Christ, which is eternal. And that when you and I spend time together and do the process of walking that out hand in hand, side by side, we get an opportunity to taste what is way richer than food or drink, which is the kingdom of heaven, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Is there anyone around you where there might be a clash? Is it just that you're different? Is it just that you're weaker? Maybe you're weaker. Maybe they're stronger. Is it that maybe you have the right answer with the wrong motive, right? But unity in the church is protected through this thing, not through rules, but through faith. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.